Good morning. My name is Pastor John. I'm the associate pastor here at East Shore. I'm so glad you've joined us in worship this morning. This is going to be our second week talking about how we can have hope in hard times, hope in hard times. And the reason we're talking about this is because while Christmas season is a time of joy and celebration for many, I know that for some, the holidays can be hard. We might be struggling with the pressures of life or maybe some extremely trying circumstances. So even if this Christmas is hard for us, we can have hope by trusting in God's faithfulness. That's what we talked about the last time we were together, last week. We talked about God's great faithfulness to us. And faithfulness is such a wonderful characteristic of God because when we are going through a difficult trial or a difficult time, it's so comforting to know that we have someone with us. Perhaps if we have to have a hard conversation with someone, or maybe there's a nerve-wracking doctor's appointment coming up, it means so much when a friend says, I'll go with you. I'll be there with you when you go through that. There's nothing like having a faithful friend in those situations. And God's faithfulness is even better, and that's what makes it so amazing and such a great source of comfort. So faithfulness, and God's faithfulness is wonderful, but I think if we're honest, just faithfulness, that's not completely satisfying to us. Because in trying times, we want something more than someone to say, it's okay, I'm going to be with you. That's wonderful. We're so grateful for that. But what we want is the situation to be over, to be made right. We want justice. We want our struggle, our efforts to be noticed and appreciated. We want to see the wrong in our life made right. And every human has this built-in desire for justice. If we see something wrong, we want it to be fixed. We want justice. We want rightness. We want fairness. If you're a parent or even younger brothers and sisters, you'll know one of the first things a child learns to say is, that's not fair. Now, as adults, as grown-ups, we know that life is not always fair, so we don't say that. But just because we know that doesn't mean that we like it. Deep inside, we want things to be fair, to be just, to be right. And that brings us back to our amazing passage in Lamentations chapter 3. Today, we're going to look at the second half of the chapter, and we're going to discover that God promises us more than His faithfulness. He promises justice. In hard times, we can trust in God's great justice. So let's take a look. If you're not there already, please turn your Bibles to the book of Lamentations, chapter 3. It's a short book, so if you're using that red Bible and the seat back in front of you, it should be on page 434, 434. And once you are there in Lamentations 3, I'd ask that if you are able, you please stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then follow along. I will read our passage for today. We're reading the second half, so I'm starting in verse 34. So Lamentations, big number 3, little number 34. And then I'll be reading to the end of the chapter, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Verse 34, to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test 
and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hands, our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. You have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite. Verse 50, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees my eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I've been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. Verse 55, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my case. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. But you will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. Let's pray. God, in hard times, it's so important for our focus to be on you. As we talked about your faithfulness last week, may we see you as we talk about your justice today. To borrow words from John the Baptist, my prayer for this time, God, as always, is that you would increase. We would see more and more of you, that I would decrease, that would be less focused on us and more focused on you. Lord, you are the God of justice. Help us to respond to you with repentance and trust. Lead us to turn away from sin and to trust that you are in control. Guide us to place our trust and hope in you and in your Son who takes our cause and redeems our lives. It's in his name, the name of Jesus Christ, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let's talk again about where we are in scripture. So we're again in the book of Lamentations. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that a lament or a lamentation, it's an expression of grief or sorrow. And this little book is a collection of five poems. They're poems mourning the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in the year 587 or 586 BC. What happened was God brought his people into a promised land, but once they were there, they decided to worship other gods. And that forced God to send enemy nations to attack his people. 
to conquer their territory, to destroy their cities, and to send most of them away into exile. The author of this book is assumed to be the prophet Jeremiah. He witnessed the collapse of his nation, the destruction of Jerusalem. So I think it's safe to say that Jeremiah is going through a hard time. But rather than despair, what Jeremiah does is he takes the time to compose this beautiful poem that makes up our passage. In chapters 1 through 4 of this book, we have four acrostic poems. That's where each line or group of lines starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Here in chapter 3, if you'll remember, there are 22 Hebrew letters, and each letter gets three verses, so 22 letters times three verses equals 66 verses in chapter 3. I talked about this image. This is the first six verses. Hebrew, you read from right to left. You'll notice 1, 2, 3 start with the same letter, and 4, 5, 6 start with the same letter. So you can see the acrostic pattern in Hebrew. Last week, we looked at the very first half of the poem. It taught us that when it feels like God is against us, we should trust in His great faithfulness. The destruction of Jerusalem, it made Jeremiah think that God was now an enemy of his people. But then he remembered that God was faithful and that this time of darkness would be used by God to create a greater light. Even though it was painful, God had a purpose in his people's suffering. In our passage today, Jeremiah is continuing to unpack the Lord's faithfulness, and he's going to do that first by praising the God of justice, the God of justice. Jeremiah trusted that God was just. Now today, we often like to talk about how God is love, God is grace, God is mercy, but the scripture talks a lot about how the one true God is a God of justice. And our passage here is one example of that. In verses 34 through 36, we learn the Lord does not approve when prisoners are mistreated or crushed underfoot. He sees when his people are denied their rights and the justice that they deserve. Injustice before God's face, in defiance of his character, that's an affront to him. He finds it offensive. He is insulted and angered when people's rights are subverted, deprived, or twisted away from them. When someone's just case or their cause is denied over a little technicality, when the powerful find favor over the weak, the Lord does not approve. Why? Because justice is important to God. It's a part of his character. Moses described God this way, the big letters. He called God the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. He then adds a God of faithfulness and without iniquity or sin, just and upright is he. God is perfect. He never does anything wrong. Now, we may not like what he does. We may not agree with it from our perspective, but the truth is that everything he does is right. And that's what justice is. It's right behavior or right actions being rewarded, whereas wrong behavior and wrong actions are punished. It's things as they should be. And this is a desire we see even today in the world. If you look at what's happening in the world around us, you'll see there are protests everywhere, from Hong Kong to Iran to almost every day in Washington, D.C. Why are people protesting? Because people want justice. They want to see wrongs made right. This isn't a new desire. It's coming from the very heart of God. But the key is trusting Him to bring it about. 
The prophet Isaiah would write that the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. God's justice will come in his timing. Now, that doesn't mean that it's wrong to protest. That doesn't mean it's wrong to seek justice in our world. But we have to realize that true and perfect justice can only come from the Lord. Jeremiah was reminded of this as he looked around the destroyed city of Jerusalem. This once great city had spent years denying God, years pursuing their own sinful desires. But at long last, the day of reckoning came. And so the city's destruction was judgment from the Lord. As Jeremiah writes in verses 37 and 38, nothing can come to pass unless the Lord commands, decrees, or gives permission for it to happen. It is God's commands from His mouth, His authority, that bring about both the good of well-being and the bad of calamity and woe. A prophet Amos had actually made a very similar point much earlier. In Amos 3.6, he says, Is a trumpet blown in a city and people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? God is in control. Everything that happens comes from Him. And Jeremiah is realizing that this is actually good news for him and for the Israelites. Because while God's judgment was coming on them right now, that was not going to be the final word. In his own book, in the book of Jeremiah, God said this, For thus says the Lord, Just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. God was bringing judgment and woe on the people now, but it was also in his power to do good to them and to bless and Jeremiah trusted that God would do that again soon. And we have to imagine that that took a lot of faith, because if you remember what we read last week, Jeremiah and his people are in horrible conditions. The city is collapsed. Their country is destroyed. Yet he still trusted God to do good. After all, Jeremiah knew that the people had earned this judgment. If you look in verse 39, he asks a rhetorical question. He says, why should a living man, why should someone who's alive complain about the punishment of their sins. If God is a God of justice, if he brings about both good and bad circumstances in our lives, why should we complain when he judges our sin? And the Israelites had sinned. Judgment and exile were God's discipline on these people for their sin. He did it because he loved them, and they should not complain. In the words of Micah 7, 9, the prophet says, I will bear the indignation or the judgment of the Lord because I know that I have sinned against him. And I'll bear it until he, until the Lord pleads my cause and executes judgment of justice for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. God is just. He will not let his people continue in sin. He will bring his judgment and discipline to those who turn away from him. And at the same time, he will restore those who return to him. The Lord will plead the cause of his repentant people. He will turn them back to the light because he is in control. The God of justice will bring justice. 
This section is kind of a transition from what we read last week. We talked about how God has a purpose in everything he does in our lives. And here we see that while we may define one thing God does as good, we may say another thing is bad. All of it is used by the Lord for his purposes. Everything is under his control. That means from whoever has political power at the moment and what they do with it, to the, every person you encountered this week, all of them, God is over. None of them are outside of God's power. Now, that doesn't make the Lord the author of sin. Sin, our sin, what we do wrong, that's the result of our rebellion against him. But it does mean that nothing that happens to us is outside of his control. Now, if that doesn't make sense to you, well, that's, that's part of where faith and trust comes in. The Bible tells us two things. It says we are responsible for our sin, and God is in control of all things. And there's some tension there between those two points that will not be resolved on this side of eternity. So the solution is to move forward trusting the God of justice who is in control. Now, trusting that may not be easy. I like this quote, the Protestant reformer John Calvin, he said, there is nothing more difficult to be assured of than this truth, that God governs, he rules the world by his counsel, and nothing happens without a design. And that's difficult because he says when a trial comes, this doctrine, this belief vanishes, and everyone is carried away by perverted, erroneous thoughts. He's saying it's real easy to believe, yes, God is in control, but when your life gets difficult, that thought often slips away. When we're in the midst of a trial and a storm, do we really believe that God is in control? When it's our rights that are being denied, do we still believe it? I'll be the first to confess, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I think I have to handle all of my problems by myself. But yet I've found every time when I've been pushed to my limit, I'm at the end of myself and my abilities, I find that I go to where I should have been all along, on my knees before God. And all I can do in that moment is call out to Him, praise Him. He is just and He is in control. Our life goes better when we remember that. That's why Jeremiah responds to the God of justice with a prayer of repentance. A prayer of repentance. He realizes that the people had sinned. And he encourages his Israelite brothers and sisters to repent, to turn away from their sin and return to God. In verse 40, he says they should test, examine, search their ways. And then they should return, they should turn back to the Lord. This is the exact same thing God had commanded through another prophet named Joel. Then God said, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Rend or tear your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Why? Because he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity or disaster. God is gracious and merciful. He wants to change our hearts first and foremost. And that's why it was so important then and so important today for God's people to examine what is happening on the inside in their hearts. Every person should examine themselves before God. This isn't just an Old Testament thing. The Apostle Paul passed this on to believers today. He said in 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail 
to pass the test. So we should make it a regular practice to examine ourselves. We do that through prayer, through the study of God's words. We should find out what our hearts really worship and adore. If you do this, maybe you will discover that you don't know God after all. You usually do the right things, you know all the Christian lingo, but the Lord is not the love of your life. Now, I'm not telling you to doubt your salvation. I'm telling you what Paul is saying and what Jeremiah is saying here. We need to examine ourselves. Is our daily life consistent with what we believe? Do we respond to the pressures of life the way that Jesus would respond? And if we don't on a regular basis, it's extremely important that we figure out why. Now, on the other hand, if we examine ourselves, we may discover, yes, we do know the Lord, but there are certain things that try to pull our heart away from Him. And so it will help us to examine that and know what those things are that pull us away from God and how we will deal with them when they come up. Let me give you a somewhat silly but uh, very personal example for me. Through examining myself and, and talking with friends and family, I've realized that I become frustrated and upset when I'm hungry. That's something I've discovered. So knowing that, (laughs) thank you, knowing that about myself, knowing that that happens, I can prepare my heart, mind, and body for moments of temptation. Do that two ways. One, I can pray for strength and God's grace when I'm hungry. Oh, I'm hungry. Okay, Lord, I need you now. And number two, I can pack a snack if I'm going somewhere. Now, maybe that's not your issue. You're like, that, that's, that's silly, Pastor John. Okay, but have you taken the time to examine yourself? Have you taken the time to figure out where you stand before God and what could possibly keep you from Him? And if we discover that we do not know God or that we've sinned, we need to pray a prayer of repentance. In verse 41, Jeremiah instructs the people to lift up their hearts, lift up their hands to God, and to call out to Him. And these prayers of repentance begin with confessing sin. Look what he says in verse 42. He starts his prayer. We have transgressed, we have sinned, we have rebelled. And since they did not repent, God did not forgive or pardon them. He brought judgment and exile to the Israelites. Jeremiah's prayer here, this prayer of repentance, it's very similar to another one in the Old Testament from the same time period in the exile. Another prophet named Daniel was in exile in Babylon, and this is what he prayed. He said, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, because we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, obeying what he says. He set them before us by his servants, the prophets. Both Jeremiah and Daniel are acknowledging that the people had broken God's laws. They had sinned against him. And both are pointing that God is the one who can forgive. They are calling out to him for forgiveness. So both Daniel's in Daniel 9 and Jeremiah's here, they are excellent prayers of repentance. And think about this. This is Jeremiah and Daniel. They're two of the most moral men in Israel, but they did not view themselves as completely innocent. They use we. We have rebelled against him. We have transgressed and rebelled. And most importantly, they're not making excuses. They're accepting responsibility for their actions and for those of their people. They're not saying, God, I know we did this wrong thing, but we were tired. God, yes, we were sinning then, but we were having a bad day. Their words are, we have transgressed and rebelled. Repentance means taking responsibility for our actions and then accepting the consequences 
whatever they may be. And there were severe consequences for the Israelites' sins. That's the next few verses of this section. Jeremiah is reminding God of his condition. God had wrapped or covered, enveloped himself with anger. He seemed to pursue and chase his people to bring them to judgment. Many Israelites were killed, slaughtered by their enemies without mercy and pity. As we saw last week, God appeared to have wrapped, hidden himself in a cloud so that Jeremiah's prayers could not even pass through and reach his Lord. Instead of rescuing his people, God seems to have discarded them like scum, refuse, and garbage. And with the destruction of their nation, the Israelites are now less than other people. They do not have a land of their own. They are a homeless people. And so their enemies taunt them, and they're filled with panic, terror, and fear. It was like God had laid out a pitfall or a snare, a trap, that then led to their devastation, their destruction, and their ruin. In verse 48, Jeremiah responds with rivers or streams of endless tears for the destruction of his people. He cries without ceasing, without respite, without relief. He cannot stop weeping for his lost people. And as we talked about last week, this is probably how we would respond if we were in the same situation. Imagine if we lost our family, our friends, our home, and our country all in one day. The only thing he felt that could stop his tears would be if the Lord looked down from heaven and stopped his pain. That's what he says in verse 50. And that's going to happen, but we're not quite there yet. In the meantime, Jeremiah says in verse 51 that the destruction he sees with his eyes brings him grief and suffering to his soul. His heart is breaking at the fate of the women in Jerusalem. Now, I don't want to go into too much detail here, but in the ancient world, things did not normally go well for women in a conquered city. Most would be used, abused, and then enslaved. And Jeremiah is witnessing all of this firsthand. And although while, of course, what the women went through is worse than what he experienced, he's still broken. He is in shock over what he has seen. And it kind of reminded me of some interviews that I read and watched this week. That's why I have the picture on the screen. There was this unexpected volcano eruption in New Zealand, and there were several tourists on the, on the island that died, and many more people were severely burned. And other tourists were in boats off the island. They rushed in to help, and rescue workers came. But what I noticed in all the interviews with those who helped is that they had a, a lot of trouble describing what they had seen. They couldn't give details about it because I don't think they could process the pain and suffering that they saw. That's the same thing that's happening to Jeremiah here. He's having the same reaction to this event. He, he's having trouble describe it. All he can do is break down in tears. The point here is that sin has consequences. The women in Jerusalem suffered because of decades of sin and complacency. So let us learn that lesson well. Where sin is allowed to run its course, the innocent suffer. Sin is that dangerous and that deadly, and that is why God takes it so seriously. Now, the prophet's focus changes a bit in verse 52. He talks a bit more about a personal experience. He may be talking about some symbolic emotional struggle, but he experienced a lot of what he talks about in 52, 53, and 54. He says he was hunted by a bird, like a bird by those who were his enemies without cause. People who had never, he had never hurt, they were out to get him. And this happened before Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. Jeremiah tried to warn the people about what was coming, and, but they didn't like what he had to say. 
And so like verse 53, Jeremiah was actually thrown into a dark pit. And so he didn't just feel like he was stuck in a pit. I feel like my life's in a pit. He actually was in a pit. In Jeremiah 38, 6, we see this. They took Jeremiah, they cast him into the cistern, the well, the pit that belonged to Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard. They let him down by ropes into it. There was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank into the mud. That sounds very similar to, they flung me alive into the pit and water closed over my head. The second half of verse 53, some translations say that he had stones thrown at him, which he may have, but it could also be referring to the stones that then covered the top of that well or cistern. Mine has cast stones on me on top of the well so that he was stuck in darkness. That would be similar to how like Daniel was sealed into the lion's den with a stone or how Jesus's body was sealed into a, a tomb with a stone. And then maybe the rising mud is the words in verse 54 of water closing over his head. Although perhaps he's also referring to the words of David from Psalm 69. David said, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters. The flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Either way, whether Jeremiah is talking about a real thing or he's just referencing David's words, I think many people can relate to feeling overwhelmed by the mounting pressures of life. Jeremiah felt like his life was lost. He thought he was going to be perished. He was going to be cut off from the land of the living. And at the very end, he makes a desperate appeal to God with this prayer. And that's what a prayer of repentance must be a desperate cry to God, a commitment to leave sin and to seek Him. Our response to sin must be to turn away from it. Repentance is not feeling sorry for sin. That's like when a child is told to say sorry after hitting another child. They say, sorry. That's what they say. They don't really mean that. They're sorry they were caught, not for what they did. So on the other hand, True repentance is a change of direction. It's being broken by sin. It's committing to never do that again. It means being willing to make the necessary changes to stop sinning. And then not just being willing, but actually making those changes in our lives. If we are serious about pursuing God, then we will repent of sin and not just feel sorry for it. Because it's only after we repent that we can safely move to a prayer of trust, a prayer of trust. So he's now confessed his repentance, and Jeremiah finishes his poem by expressing trust in the God of justice. He is trusting God to help him, trusting God to take up his cause, because God gives true justice. That means he's both helping us and he's advocating for us. He stands beside us. When God gives justice, he gives us relief and he defends our case. We'll see both in these verses. The first is this major shift in verse 55. I called on your name, O Lord. He goes from suffering to praise when God works on his behalf. One commentator, I read Stephen Smith, he said this, the greenhouse of grace does not need the light of day, just the light of God. 
And at last, Jeremiah is seeing the light of God in his dark situation. From the lowest depths of that pit, Jeremiah called on the name of the Lord. He cried out to God to be faithful to his loving character and to help him. And we see in verse 56 that, praise God, he was heard. You heard my plea. The Lord heard his crying, and he did not cover his ears, but responded to the prophet's call for help and relief. This is the same kind of prayer the psalmist has in 116, 1 and 2. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. And because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. God hears his people. He responds to them in his timing and in his way. Verse 57 tells us that God came near to Jeremiah, and then he told him, do not fear. In this prayer of trust, Jeremiah is putting into practice words that a Christian years and years later would write. James would write this, draw near to God or come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash or cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Come near to God, draw near to God, and he will come near to you. That's what Jeremiah is doing. He sought God. He desired to be near him. He confessed his sin. He turned from it, and God responded by drawing near to him and by comforting him. And his words of comfort are, do not fear. This is also similar to something that we heard when we were studying through the book of Joshua earlier this year. In Joshua 1.9, God said, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not fear. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. If God is with us, then we do not have to be afraid. Whatever may come, we can trust the Lord to be with us. He will give us relief when we need it, and he's just in doing so. But more than that, we can trust him not only to help us, not only will he give us relief, he'll also be our advocate, our defender. Look at the words of verse 58. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. God has pleaded his case. God has come to his defense. And it wasn't something Jeremiah hoped would happen. God did it. The text says, you have taken up my cause. Not you will, but you have. And Jeremiah needed this because there was wrong done to him by his fellow Israelites. He needed God to be his judge, to uphold his case, to prove him right to his enemies. They had sought vengeance on Jeremiah through many plots and schemes. But still, Jeremiah trusted that the Lord had heard all their taunts, all their insults, all the vile names that they hurled at him. Everything they said and whispered was known to God. And even though they taunted him, whether they were sitting or rising or standing, still the prophet knew that the Lord would repay. Jeremiah expressed something similar in his book in Jeremiah 11. He says, I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me they devised schemes, saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. But, O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind. Let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. 
So look what Jeremiah is doing. He's not seeking to defend himself to his adversaries. He's trusting the God of justice to do right. He trusted God to expose what was right, to work everything out in the end. He would defend Jeremiah. He would pay back his wicked enemies for the works of their hands, for all the evil that they had done. And again, we might say that seems a little harsh, Pastor, in these passages, but it's not just an Old Testament prayer. The Apostle Paul would write this in 2 Timothy 4.14, Alexander the metalworker, the coppersmith, he did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. Those who pursue evil then have their heart dulled by the Lord. They become stubborn. They're unable to return to him. They continue in the path that leads to their destruction. God always sees that justice will be done. And this should be a great source of comfort to us because the God of justice sees that his people are proven right. He sees that their enemies are defeated. And thinking about that this week filled me with with an immense amount of joy because as I get older, the world seems less and less black and white. It seems more and more gray. Things are not what they seem. There's a lot of confusion about right and wrong. I'm not just talking about people in the world around us. I'm talking about my own life. The difference between a right and a wrong decision is sometimes hard to make. But praise the Lord that the God of justice is in control. Although things may seem confusing down here, they will be clear there. And in the meantime, God has taken up our cause. On this side of eternity, people will misunderstand us. They'll question our motives. They'll attack us without cause. But the Lord, if we trust in Him, His justice will be done. Let me confess something again. I can get very easily wrapped up into what people are saying about me, what they think about me. And all of us have probably experienced people assuming things about us that just aren't true. People doubt our motives. They question our character. And then they have no interest in a conversation to find out the truth, to give us a chance to defend ourselves. And when that happens, it's so frustrating and sad. But that's why we need to change our focus. While we shouldn't deliberately try to sabotage our reputation, what others think about us is not the most important thing. If God is on our side, if he pleads our case and our cause, then we do not need anyone or anything else because what he thinks should be most important. If we know God through his son, Jesus Christ, then he is on our side and he defends us. And so when people say things, when others attack, we have to have the humility to say, God, you defend my reputation because I can't. And Jeremiah is reminding us here that in the end, God will do right. Truth will win out. Yes, God truly is on our side. But you know what? There's even more. Because the God of justice is not only on our side, but someone else has taken up our cause too. Read verse 58 again. He says, You, God, have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. He not only takes up our cause, he redeems our lives. He purchases us away from slavery to sin and buys us into devotion to him. Well, how can God do that? How can God take us from sinning to him? Well, that's only through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. 
Jesus lived a perfect life, and then he died in our place for our sins. And he did this so we could be restored to the just God, a right relationship with him. Now we can know that God is a God of justice. Now we can pray a prayer of repentance. We can come to him. We can turn away from sin. Now we can pray a prayer of trust when we are in our most desperate trial. Even if we don't feel like it or we don't know what to say, we can trust the Lord. Pastor Charles Spurgeon, he encourages us that the Lord Jesus Christ is always ready to take the most imperfect prayer and perfect it for us. If our prayers had to go up to heaven as they are, they would never succeed. But, but they find a friend, they find an advocate on the way, and therefore they prosper. Our failures in prayer, they are met, they are overcome by our great God and Savior. So let me ask you, do you know him? Do you know this friend, this advocate, this defender? The only way to know him, the only way to be restored to the God of justice is by repentance and faith. It's turning away from sin and placing all our hope and trust in Jesus Christ. Only then will God's justice and his faithfulness be on your side. If you want to know more about that, please talk to me about it. We'll talk about how God's faithfulness was extended to you, how his justice is available, how his justice was met in Jesus Christ so that you can know him. If you do know him this morning, I will then praise the God who redeemed you, this God of justice. Live this way, examine yourself, repent, turn from sin when it comes up, and spend every day trusting in him. After all, he is in control. He pleads our cause. He loves us, and he deserves our praise because he alone is worthy.